So I guess uh, technically I think we're waxing crescent. Uh, But, you know, the night sky is still pretty dark and uh, everything's pretty dark. But um, now is the time for setting intentions, planting seeds to bring things into light. And uh, we have, you know, we have a lot of planting to do, a lot of work to do uh, to bring more light uh, into this world. And, uh, it's, uh, it's daunting, but, um, you know, don't, uh, uh, don't give in to despair and hopelessness, uh, keep fighting, uh, take care of yourselves and each other, and, um, uh, it can be hard to not give in to that despair and hopelessness, so if you're, if you're feeling that way, uh, you're not alone, but, uh, I hope uh, I hope you'll keep keep getting up and keep fighting. But right now, I hope you can take a little break with me in the violet hour. Today I've got for you a beautiful rose metal press book by Aaron Angelo, The Fact of Memory: 114 Ruminations and Fabrications. And I'll I'm going to read you the author's note uh, to to give you a little uh, background explanation on this book. A few years ago, I was sitting in a Boulder coffee shop with my friend and mentor, the poet Julie Carr. I was nearing the end of my PhD program in literature. I hadn't been writing creatively for some time because of the scholarly work I was doing, and I felt a growing void within me. Julie mentioned that she was teaching a workshop in the MFA program that fall, and I asked her if she'd share the course book list. I have a fondness for these lists. She said sure, she'd be happy to share it, but if I'd rather, I could sit in on the workshop. Without hesitating, I said, of course. The workshop, it turned out, was not typical. Instead of students just writing and bringing in work to be critiqued, as usually happens, This writing workshop incorporated, as its central focus, a daily practice of some kind. During the first few weeks, students were asked to think of an action that they could do every day. It could be ordinary or strange. It could involve writing, but it didn't have to. One student chose to walk a certain path each day. One drew an ordinary object, a different object each day, in his notebook. Julie, as I recall, went to the park near her house, lay on the ground beneath a tree, and looked at the sky. The only condition of this practice was that every student had to make a good-faith effort to do this action or set of actions every 24 hours. The writing we did for the workshop would, in some way, be informed by or reflect that daily practice. For my daily practice, I chose to do the following. Each morning, I set my alarm for 5 a.m. That alone was a big disruption in my ordinary routine. I was not then and am not now a morning person. I made myself a cup of coffee and walked to a chair in my apartment that sat adjacent to a sliding glass door that led to a tiny balcony. I had a sketchbook, and at the top of each page, I wrote, in order, a single word from Shakespeare's 29th sonnet. I sat in the chair, looked at the word for that day. Then for several minutes, I just thought about it, completely out of its context. Once I felt I was filled with that word, as if the word filled my body, not just my mind, I began to write. Usually, I had no idea what I was writing, 
For the most part, I started from a place of what I like to call the beyond consciousness, from a place where I didn't know what I was composing, so to speak. I wanted to access a mental space that allowed for spontaneity without, quote, any irritable reaching after fact and reason, as Keats so famously said. Occasionally, partway through a piece, I would do a bit of research, i.e. look something up on my phone. But generally, I just wrote. I paid no attention to whether I was writing a prose poem, an essay, a story, or something else. I didn't even care if it made sense. My only rules were that I had to write in prose, I had to fill the page, and the piece couldn't overflow onto the next one. I'm not certain why I chose Shakespeare's 29th sonnet instead of, say, a poem by Emily Dickinson or John Ashbery or any other bit of text for that matter. The experiment would probably work just as well no matter the source. However, I've always had an affinity for this poem. It was the first of Shakespeare's sonnets that I memorized when I was in junior high school. I used to recite it to anyone who would listen. It was a great tool of seduction. It made me sound smart, which I didn't think I was, and it always moved me. The speaker pulls himself up from the depths of despair by simply thinking of the person he loves. It's a beautiful, if cliché, sentiment. Love is the way out of the dark places. I cherish that idea as fundamental, even at this point in my life. Once I'd finished a draft of the manuscript, once I'd written a page for each of the 114 words in the sonnet, I put it aside for a while. Then over the next few years, I periodically revisited it. I edited the pieces mercilessly. I rewrote some. I cut with abandon. I thought about how the pieces resonated with each other and what themes and memories I came back to again and again in those 114 days of writing every morning. I tried to take daily individual ruminations and make them work together as a kind of long lyric essay. In an essay titled Railway Navigation and Incarceration in his book The Practice of Everyday Life, the philosopher Michel de Soto writes that while traveling on a train, the traveler sits still in their seat. The landscape outside, the mountains, the villages, the forests, is still. There's just the glass of the window separating the interior from the silent, unmoving outside world as the train speeds along an iron rail. But, he writes, paradoxically, it is the silence of these things put at a distance, behind the window pane, which from a great distance makes our memories speak or draws out of the shadows the dreams of our secrets. It is the mundanity of the entire experience that, apart from daily lived experience, that frees the mind to access the otherwise inaccessible, to remember the forgotten, to ruminate and recollect. Memory is always, to some extent, a creative act. The fact of memory, one might say, is that it is never quite factual. We don't access a file that has been stored away in our brains, not really. Instead, we recreate a memory each time we remember it. When it speaks, we write and rewrite the dialogue. Like traveling under Soto's train, the practice I developed in that workshop back in Boulder, the isolation, the concentration, the repetition, the regularity, the sameness, allowed me access to a mental space in which memories, regardless of their relation to the facts remembered, could become the pieces that would eventually become this book. And here is Sonnet 29 by William Shakespeare. When in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy contented least, yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, happily I think on thee, and then my state, like to the lark at break of day, arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. 
Okay, so let's get into some of Aaron Angelo's ruminations. And a steady wind, wind and blowing leaves, blowing leaves and bamboo chimes, bamboo chimes and seagulls, seagulls and the first morning sun, the first morning sun and a motorcycle rumbling in the distance, a motorcycle rumbling in the distance and a blinking red stoplight, a blinking red stoplight and a closed pawn shop, a closed pawn shop and a broken minivan, a broken minivan and a yapping chihuahua, a yapping chihuahua and a Smith and Wesson, a Smith and Wesson and an orange traffic cone, an orange traffic cone and a brown weedy field, a brown weedy field and a discarded refrigerator, a discarded refrigerator and a jet plane's vapor trail, a jet plane's vapor trail and a wispy thin cloud, a wispy thin cloud and an ocean horizon, an ocean horizon and a bobbing orange boy, a bobbing orange boy and a few sandpipers, a few sandpipers and a shirtless man sitting alone listening to music on headphones, a shirtless man sitting alone listening to music on headphones and a red plastic cup broken half buried. A red plastic cup, broken, half buried, and a clump of sea grasses. A clump of sea grasses and a steady wind. On top of a bookshelf, I have a paper mache bowl the size of a cereal bowl. It's made of Charles Bukowski poems. I don't particularly like Bukowski, but I did many years ago, when the woman who made the bowl knew me, when we loved each other. She and her daughter made it for me and sent it to me as, I don't know, a gesture of kindness, as a nod to the presence of the past. It has become a container for the small and significant the shimmering minutiae that evoke entire worlds. A miniature harmonica. A rusty iron arrowhead that my father gave me. There's a lapel pin, a tiny golden angel holding a green jewel. The gold is faded. It is dull and tarnished. A friend gave it to me, said it would protect me in the city. That was back when we wrote letters. There's a gold tooth I found in the gravel parking lot of an outdoor theater where I used to work. It's a molar, and it still has a bit of actual tooth embedded in the gold. The story of how it came to be in that parking lot must surely be a gruesome one, and the object itself repulses me, yet I can't let it go. There's a subway token, a metal clip tag from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a stone that a child gave me, a fairy tear. There's an antique metal watch fob with the words Cripple Creek written on it. There's a little plastic bull that was once attached to a bottle of wine that I drank in Spain with a beautiful woman whom I didn't love. There's a wedding ring, a 1973 quarter, pieces of charred tile from a place that burned furiously to the ground. Outside the window is intensely familiar. There is a band of sunlight that runs horizontally along the neighbor's wall. It's almost as if I understand the spaces around me and the things they contain, the light and the sounds in the air. They are like the light and the sounds in the air that I've known before. Very like. These hands are not more like, yet they are not alike. We understand everything for better or worse, through a gesture of comparison, 
My friends in Costa Rica are just like my friends in California. The gravel on the side of the road in upstate New York is just like the gravel on the driveway of my childhood home. The structures that support our experience are built, it seems, on the tenuousness of recollection. Yesterday, I went to an old outdoor theater where I used to perform Shakespeare. I was a member of the company. I taught students how to find iams in the line. I cleared poison oak from the pathways. I lived in a little trailer on the property. I got married on the smaller of the two stages. It was my creative and literal home for a few amazing years. Yesterday, I felt that that theater was very much like the theater in my memory. The smell of the plant life was very much like the smell I remembered. The birds flying from the stage to the lighting grid were very much like the birds that watched Hamlet jump into Ophelia's grave. Eyes. I can't believe my eyes, some say with a kind of unambiguous wisdom, a note of sadness in their voices. The voices of those who have eaten the fruit from the forbidden tree who are aware of their nakedness, who wander through the desert on cracked and dusty feet. These organs, the eyes, are always there in the face, looking forward, the looker often unaware of their presence and functioning. This is part of the problem. I remember a movie I saw as a child. The characters were all puppets, but they were puppets representing fantastical and often frightening creatures. One of the puppets was a witch, I believe, who held an eye up above her head in her hand. It was through this eye that she saw, for she had none in her face. If she found it necessary to see someone or something, she would take her eye, her tool, out of her pocket or pouch, and point it in the direction of a particular set of data that she might usually apply to various other sets of data that she had collected via other means and stored in her cackling little puppet brain. We might all be better off with eyes and pouches. And before the long line, there were only circles. Thousands of years ago, there was no forward progress of history because the idea of logical progression and history hadn't yet been conceived. There were images, sounds, and circles. Circles and myths. Circles and myths and bodies, feeling the shimmer of potential spiraling below and above them in an eternally recurring delirium. A turning over of time. A redoubling of air and flesh and thoughts and the hunt. Storytellers told poems, long and repetitive. Rosy-fingered dawn and rosy-fingered dawn and rosy-fingered dawn. They told the same poem again and again and again. And every time they told it, it was a different poem. Girls and boys spun on hillsides. Warriors fought battles that constantly turned back in upon themselves. Lovers fell in love and fell in love and fell in love. The light hit this side of the olive tree and then that. It was a small group of men who let us find a way to explain this world in which we live, this world in which the light hits this side of the olive tree and then that. They made symbols that could be arranged in lines and history began. Events followed other events. A new way of thinking began, one that relied on order and exclusion, cause and effect, thesis and antithesis. Words became the structure of experience, circles flattened into lines, extending from point to conceptual point, forever in two directions, forward and backward. Lines of words that would continue to grow and grid and multiply. phone, my spate of absences, my imagination, my catalog, 
my ever-growing collection of Raymond Chandler novels, my sympathies, my dog, my sense of self-worth coupled with my debilitating insecurity, my penchant for a well-made cocktail, my interpretation of my memories, my memories, my schedule, my favorite joke, my masculinity, my morning, my boots, my jacket, my limited Spanish, my reading habits, my wife, my plans, my guitars, my career or lack of one, my intentions with your daughter, my loss, my ex, my tendency to drink too much wine and send inappropriate emails, my favorite coffee mug, my addictions, my pangs, my normal route, my students, my family, my struggle, my money, my keepsakes, my albums, my series of mistakes, my dream life, my inability to remember my dreams, my art, my software, my bed and my bedclothes, my atheism, my God, my favorite films on DVD, my glasses, my only chance to tell you this, my appreciation of jazz, my guilt, my horse amigo, my best friend, my punishment, my wife, my color, my car, and myself, my influences, my talent, my favorite Mexican restaurant in Los Angeles, El Coyote, my last day, my hairline, my hat, my plants, my chutzpah, my writing, my life and my life in the 90s, my culture, my time in New York, my successful friends, my Melville, my Dickinson, my Nabokov, my Ashbury, my bad knees, my fear of success, my brothers, my insurance policy, my secondhand couch, my mystery, my composition, my construction. Scope. Three rocks are balanced on top of one another, stacked in a pillar on the side of a creek, evidence of another human hand. This provides the hiker who comes upon it with a bit of perspective. Whether it was put there to mark a spot, a cairn to indicate a location on a path, or whether someone just did it because they wanted to see a stack of rocks by a creek, it doesn't matter now. Now the stack of rocks is only communicating the fact that there was another person in this place, and that person altered the environment. That person created something in the world, and the world will never be the same again. I have the lyrics to so many songs in my head. I wonder sometimes if all of my speech, everything I say or have ever said, is a quote from some song. Maybe it's slightly remixed, but the source material for every utterance I make is a vast bank of song lyrics, mostly from the 80s and 90s. Every promise I've made is made of pop song. A visitation subject to context. In the 30s, Alan Lomax traveled across the country with recording equipment capturing and collecting songs. He went to prisons, remote parts of Appalachia, Georgia plantations, anywhere he could find someone sitting on a front porch with a banjo singing a song that had been passed down from generation to generation, anywhere he could find a song to collect, voices scratchy and old singing songs with words that were nearly lost, words pronounced with strange accents, stacked precariously on the precipice of forgetting. My. Once, when I was very young, I was riding in the car with my parents. We were driving along these winding mountain roads between Cripple Creek and Victor. As often happens on these roads, we drove into a cloud that sat heavily on the ground like a patch of mountain fog. My father excitedly rolled down the window and yelled back to me, Aaron, quick, grab a handful of cloud. 
I reached both of my hands out the window into a particularly dense bit of cloud and cupped them around it. Do you have it? I think so. I pulled my hands back into the car, making sure there were no gaps between my fingers from which the cloud could escape. I held the cloud in my hands for the entire ride home. Once home, I ran into my room and stowed the cloud in the top drawer of my dresser. For more than a year after that, I would spend hours in my room playing with what I'd come to refer to as my pet cloud. I never named my pet cloud. I just called it my pet cloud. It couldn't really do anything other than be a pet cloud. But neither can a pet fish or a pet hamster or a pet turtle. I think I really loved my pet cloud. But as often happens with the things we love as children, my pet cloud became increasingly less important to me. I played with it less frequently. It eventually became just a part of the stuff that was in that drawer. Sometimes I'd not even see it when I looked into that drawer for something else. Eventually we moved, and I lost track of it entirely. Maybe I'll find it someday, in an old box of trophies, report cards, baseballs. And a few inches of snow. A few inches of snow and a trailer park. A trailer park and naked ash trees. Naked ash trees and a colorless sky. A colorless sky and a bare street light. A bare street light and slow moving traffic. Slow moving traffic and some light flurries. Some light flurries and a pane of glass. A pane of glass and a dark hardwood floor. A dark hardwood floor and chirping birds. Chirping birds and a refrigerator's hum. A refrigerator's hum and muffled voices. Muffled voices and an old projector. An old projector and three little boys. Three little boys and a beautiful young woman smoking. A beautiful young woman smoking and a German shepherd. A German shepherd and a snowy hillside. A snowy hillside and a red plastic sled. A red plastic sled and a campfire. A campfire and marshmallows, marshmallows and a man with a Burt Reynolds mustache. A man with a Burt Reynolds mustache and an old woman crying. An old woman crying in a Stevie Wonder album. A Stevie Wonder album and a big white horse named Chance. A big white horse named Chance and Evil Knievel. Evil Knievel and a drawing of Spider-Man. A drawing of Spider-Man and the smell of pine. The smell of pine and a bucket of hot water for the horse trough. A bucket of hot water for the horse trough and a few inches of snow. Outcast. Little circles around everybody. The first circle is not really a circle at all, but it is a border that traces the points at which skin meets air. This is my body. It belongs to me. It is unique and separate from all that surrounds it. This circle, or border, is at the center of a slightly larger circle, or border. This one is different for everyone. It is sometimes called one's personal space. It is the area within which a person can literally feel, on the surface of their skin, the resonant presence of another body. When another body enters this space uninvited, it is a violation. When a body enters it invited, it is an eroticism. For some, this space is an inch or two around the first circle. For others, it can be several feet. This is our body, our personal space. Our skin feels, even without touch. We forget, though, that our bodies continue to extend outward, out from the chair in which we sit, out across the room, through the books and furniture and walls, 
out along streets and through buildings, across the countryside, into eternity. Of two figures sit in matching, worn, overstuffed armchairs facing the camera. Each chair is angled slightly toward the other. An old man is camera left, an old woman is camera right. They both wear light gray cardigans. Their hair is gray, their skin is gray. His slacks are gray, her skirt is gray. They both look blankly into the camera. There is a screen upon which is projected scenes of movement, the kind of moving images that were used in old movies to make it appear the actors in the car were moving down a winding mountain road or through bustling Manhattan streets. The two figures continue to look blankly into the camera. A song is playing on a scratchy old 78. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. I'm half crazy, all for the love of you. The record is skipping. The two figures sit looking into the camera, but now the eyes twitch. Then sudden silence and darkness. A beat. Footsteps. A man walks into frame smoking a cigarette. His face is faintly illuminated by the cigarette's glow. He snaps his fingers and a spotlight shines on him. He smiles the smile of a vaudevillian and begins to tap dance. He stops, bows, and walks out of frame. The two figures can be seen in the spotlight's periphery, looking blankly into the camera. Alone. There's an old George Strait song that begins, Alone is much better together. But even then, we are on our own. In our studio apartments. In our Volkswagen Jettas with slipping belts. In dirt-covered lots. On crowded buses. At outdoor cafe tables, tossing crumbs of muffin to gnarled pigeons. What? There are, once in a while, moments of absolute confusion. Moments that are marked not by misunderstanding, but by a total lack of understanding. These are the moments that leave a man asleep on the couch, fully clothed, a whiskey glass on his chest. These moments happen over cigarettes on stoops, in living rooms, on short mountain hikes. Each moment is usually centered around a sentence, a declaration that is connected to nothing else in the conversation. You're going to go to a new school. Your mom and I are going to live in separate houses. Your grandma's not going to come back home. I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be with you anymore. Mimes are almost always the butt of a joke, but some of the most beautiful and moving performances I've seen have been mime performances. One Halloween in a 39-seat theater in Hollywood, I watched a mime perform an hour-long version of a vampire story. With the possible exception of the Murnau film, I've never seen a more frightening, sad, and beautiful telling of this kind of story. Just one man using his body and only his body. No sound, no costume changes, no props. I've tried many times to tell people about how profoundly good this performance was, but no one can wrap their head around it. I say mime, and they envision a man in white makeup pretending to be trapped in a box. I sit with a woman and try to match my experience with hers. Touch is significant, but differently significant to each touched body.
I read recently that remembering is a creative act. It isn't a retrieval of stored information. It is a creative construction of past events that take place in the present. And apparently, the more frequently one remembers a given event, the less likely it is that the memory accurately represents the event being remembered. A memory is the recreation of the last recreation of that memory. Everything we know about ourselves and our worlds is fiction. Our entire past, our vast bank of stored experience, is a massive, unfinished novel in fragments. The red and white striped sweater, that look on her face when you touched her knee beneath the table, the carpet in your grandmother's house, who was driving, the poster of Marilyn Monroe on the wall of your college dorm room. These are not fragments of a past shored against ruins. They are inventions. Greg, Danielle, Nicole, and I sat on the rooftop drinking Chianti from water glasses, the Chrysler building above us, the towers below. We were the new beats, Greg said. Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Marlon Brando, James Dean... We were taking those reins, drinking wine and smoking parliaments on a rooftop in the East Village, three stars visible in the night sky. Car alarms in the distance. We all sang along with the familiar patterns of beeps and whoops. Nicole's arm. Her eyes on me, holding for the briefest of moments. Mousy, it's me, Mr. Bear. Oh, hey, Mr. Bear, come on in. Oh, uh, what's what's that hanging off your shoulders, Miss Mousy? Oh, that's just um some seaweed. Uh, I got a little sunburn, so uh, I uh, I decided to mermaid up my shoulders. Uh, okay, Mer- mermaid up your shoulders. Yeah, that's what I like to call it, you know, mermaiding, um, just, you know, for fun, since uh, mermaids live in the water with uh, seaweed, so, you know, you put on the seaweed and uh, pretend you're a mermaid. Ah, uh, and that helps your sunburn? Well, I mean, the pretending to be a mermaid uh, doesn't actually have anything to do with your sunburn, um, but seaweed can help, yeah. Uh, Seaweed is uh, fantastic for the skin, um, and it's very soothing and moisturizing and can help heal wounds. It's, it's wonderful, um, you know, it's topically, and um, it's, it's great to, uh, to drink, too. I mean, seaweed tea doesn't appeal to a lot of people, but, um, you know, uh, a broth, you know, if you call it seaweed broth, I think people are a little more open to it. You say seaweed tea, they might go, ew. But, you know, seaweed broth, that's just kind of like soup. Um, You know, soup and tea are, you know, they're kind of the same thing sometimes. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Oh, so so what happened? You got sunburned. Yeah, it was just, you know, um, sometimes, you know, you don't pay attention. And my, my sun hat um, protected my, my face and, and neck and, and chest really well. But um, my little mousy shoulders, um, they, got, they got in this a little too much sun. Um, so, yeah, um, rose water, spraying with rose water is uh, one, of my, one of my favorite go-tos for just about everything. 
Um, and you can just, you know, you can find rose water um, even at your grocery store sometimes. I mean, depending on your grocery store um, or an herbal store or online. Um, but, you know, spraying it is cooling and uh, just really, really wonderful. Uh, so, yeah, really helpful with, with sunburns and bites and, um, you know, just refreshing skincare. Oh, that's good to know. Uh, it smells nice, too. I love rose water. Yeah, me too. It is. It's so beautiful. Um, but yeah, rose water, uh, seaweed, you know, so you can you can buy some seaweed. Like, um, well, if you're lucky enough to live by the sea, you can just go get some, you know, and just put some wet right on your, your sunburn. Um, but if you're not lucky enough to uh, be able to get it that way, uh, yeah, you can buy it from someplace like Atlantic Holdfast and, um, you know, you, you rehydrate it in some water and, and put it right on, uh, right on wherever you have your, your sunburn or problem. Um, or you can, um, uh, simmer it up, bring it to a boil, do a long simmer and, uh, make a nice, uh, a nice strong tea. And you can uh, freeze that in ice cubes or put it in a spray bottle. Um, and, and so you can spray that or put the, the ice cubes on. Um. Oh, that's a, a great idea with the freezing. Yeah, I, I love to do that with lots of things. Um, so then you just have, um, you have the ice cubes ready, you know. I do it with bone broth for cooking or the seaweed, uh... You could do it with something like plantain or a marshmallow cold infusion. And then you have some nice soothing cubes um, ready when you need them. Because marshmallow, oh my goodness, um, that's uh, that's the other thing I've been uh, spraying uh, on. Um, marshmallow cold infusion, uh, so fantastic. Uh, I assume you're not talking about, you know, marshmallow sticky s'mores kind of no no not you know not like fluff um I know you originally uh spent a lot of time in Somerville Mr. Bear and that's you know fluff was invented there but no we're not talking about that kind of sticky marshmallow um marshmallow the flower um or really any in the the mallow family uh like hollyhocks and um but they're very demulcent so they're very um well, basically, they get really slimy in water. It makes a nice kind of thick, uh, viscous uh, tea. So some people find it, you know, they don't find that slime really appealing. But that's what's um, helping all your um, mucosal tissues. I know I'm using a lot of um, old-fashioned words here, Mr. Bear, but I, I think you can keep up. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, if, if not, uh, I have lots of dictionaries, so... So anyway, um, uh, marshmallow, yeah, um, and plant some, you know, I know, I know you have some growing, Mr. Bear. Oh, uh, yeah, I do, uh, sometimes it takes a while, it didn't really grow well the first year, but, uh, it's been coming back, and, uh, it's so tall. Yeah, it is, it's, it's tall, and it's got those soft fuzzy leaves, and beautiful flowers, and, you know, you can make tea with the leaves and flowers too, but, um, the roots are, are considered the, the strongest part for, um, you know, this kind of, uh, soothing action, um, but of course, you know, uh, with the roots, then it means you don't have any more plants. So uh, that's why you know everyone should should plant some plant some marshmallow. I think. Um, but anyway, marshmallow cold infusions. Uh, you know, uh, it just means you don't have to boil the water. Just use you know regular, regular uh, water from your your tap or wherever you get you know uh, good water, and uh, yeah, you put your marshmallow root in a jar and pour the the water over it and uh, let it steep for you know four to six hours at least and um, and then you have a nice um, uh, strain it out and you have a nice liquid that you can um, drink it's super hydrating and or you can freeze it in ice cubes like I like I said so you have some some ready uh, or you could put some in a spray bottle to spray um, I love having uh, 
things in spray bottles for sunburns because sometimes if it's really bad, you don't want to touch the skin. It hurts. So it's nice to just um, have a spray bottle with you because you can keep spraying. You can put it in the refrigerator to get it nice and cold. Um, and then you don't have to actually be rubbing the, the skin. So yeah, um, rose water, marshmallow, seaweed, uh, those those are my my top favorites I've been been working with, um, but you know chamomile, uh, plantain, calendula, yarrow, those are all wonderful and healing for the skin too. So you could make strong teas of those and um, and cool them off and have those in as sprays or freeze them. Um, but the the one thing you want to remember is to um, when you have a sunburn and it's still really hot to the touch, and you know, especially if it's a bad burn, you want to stick with water preparations. You know, you don't want to put salve on it, anything with oil um, or wax, uh, because those trap the heat in. Um, you know, they seal moisture in, which is which is great, um, and a, a salve can can really help heal skin. But when you have any kind of a burn, uh, yeah, you don't you don't want anything with oil or wax, salve on it. Uh, so stick to the, you know, uh, the waters, the baths, the soaks, the compresses. You know, you can uh, uh, soak a, a washcloth in any of these teas, um, uh, and and put that put that on on the area to cool it off. Uh, but you know, not until it gets, um, it stops being hot and then, you know, when it, like it gets dry and itchy, that's a great time for, for salve. Um, so. Oh, thanks, Miss Mousie. These are, these are all helpful tips. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people get, uh, sunburned in the summer. So, you know, these, these are good things to know. Yeah, well, just remind your listeners, uh, Mr. Bear, as always, uh, that I am a two-dimensional hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism, and, you know, they should always do their own research, um, but, yeah, these are some, some good places to get started. Uh, yeah, thank, thanks so much, Miss Mousy, uh, and I hope, I hope your sunburn uh, clears up. Oh, well, I'll be next, more careful next time. Um, but anyway, um, I've got a kiddie pool out back, and I've got some uh, lemonade in the in the fridge. If you wanna, you know, come out and dip your toes in. Oh, uh, you know, it, it's hot enough. I, I might just do that. Thanks, Miss Mousy. Of course, Mister Bear. That's what friends are for. Are you or anyone you know a musician, amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. And that's the show, folks. I hope you enjoyed hearing the work of Aaron Angelo. His book, The Fact of Memory, 114 Ruminations and Fabrications, is available from the wonderful Rose Metal Press at rosemetalpress.com. And you can find out more about Aaron Angelo and his writing at his website, aaronangelo.net. That's A-A-R-O-N-A-N-G-E-L-L-O dot net. And uh, before you go, I'll uh, give you your parting gift as usual, an oracle from Norton Jester's The Phantom Tollbooth. So I'll paw through and okay, here's your oracle. You could if you really wanted to, insisted Milo. By all means, if you really wanted to, you could, the humbug agreed. I'll repeat that. You could if you really wanted to, insisted Milo. 
By all means, if you really wanted to, you could, the humbug agreed. Well, that's your oracle. I'll interpret it as you please. Uh, thanks so much for joining me in the Violet Hour. I'll be back in July. Until then, take care and be kind to each other, uh, except for fascists. You don't need to be kind to fascists. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.